Okay, everyone. So, yep, as um, Jake said, we're in Colossians, uh, just after Philippians there towards the back. Um, and we're starting in chapter 1, verses 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Radio. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Russ, if I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting you. And just while I get myself organised... Um, I want to give a quick shout out to, yeah, the, the kids' church guys and the guys who do the, the kids' talk down the front here because they've pretty much stolen all of my thunder, okay? And they do an amazing job every week. Um, yeah, they're just, they've already told you exactly what I'm going to say except I'm going to take about 30 minutes to do it or something anyway. Um, but yeah, they do a great job. Um, this passage, this passage that we're looking at today from Colossians, it holds a really special place in my... Ah, oh, and you guys have youth church. I forgot that thing for the second time. Youth church is going. Are there any youth church people? There are. Hooray. Okay. Cool. Let's get into it. Um, so this passage, I was saying, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Um, there's part of me that wants to be able to say, look, it's all the Bible. It's all fantastic. Um, but this one, Colossians 1, it's a special one for me. It's special because back in 2013, uh, on a Sunday in a church in Holbrook, of all places, I actually gave my first sermon on this passage. I think I spoke for about 10 minutes, and today's going to go for a little longer than that. I hope that's okay. Um, since then, I've opened this passage in a few different churches. I've opened it up at school, youth groups, Bible studies, one-to-ones. It's a real favourite of mine. But the reason I start like this is because there's actually a danger in this for me. There's a danger for you as you listen to me. You might have heard the phrase, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. It's that idea that the better we know something the less likely we are to take it seriously or give it the attention it really deserves. And you've got with you there a sermon outline with the words written at the top, Jesus is Lord, which I'm guessing is not news to many of us. You've probably heard somebody say that before. In fact, many of the things I'm going to talk about this morning are things that I'm guessing many of us will have heard before. But I don't want you to switch off. It is possible to learn something so that you know it but it doesn't actually change anything about your life. 
And this must never be the case as we approach the words of the God of the universe. And if God's word doesn't change how you live, then I want to say you haven't really heard it. If you aren't living this, then you haven't learnt it. And the reason why I think you should try and pay attention over the next few minutes is I think best given by the opening line of today's passage. You can read it with me there in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. See, God is invisible, yet this has never kept him from revealing himself from people. The writer of Hebrews says it very clearly uh, from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God is in the business of making himself known. And this is really good news for people who want to know him. But how can you come to know God best? How can you see him most clearly? How can you know what he is like and what he wants from you? Where will you direct your not yet Christian friends and family so that they might see God as he really is and not simply as they imagine him to be? You could point them to the creation, this world that God has made. For example, it says in Romans chapter 1, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Or very similar in Psalm 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Can we know God best through what he has made? Or is it through the prophets? Is it through people who throughout history have spoken the words that God has given to them? Is that how we get our clearest look at God? It's my hope today that you will see there's actually a third option. And when I use the option, it's not really optional at all. Again, back in Hebrews, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And John says a similar thing at the start of his gospel account, that no one has ever seen God, But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So why are we looking at this passage today? What's what's so important about it? Well, the Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to understand God, you need to see Jesus. If we want our friends and family to see God, then they need to see Jesus. And this passage is just so cool, and I'm a little bit over-pumped to be sharing it with you. Because what we get is a crystal clear look at who Jesus is and the awesome things that God has achieved through him. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord both in the creation and in the reconciliation of all things. Jesus is straight up awesome. That is my goal for you today. Let's pray as we get into it. Please join with me. Lord God, you are great and awesome and there is no one like you. We ask that as we dive into your word that you would help Convince us of what is true and change us so that we can love you better and do a better job of living for you. Amen. Alrighty. So the first thing, as we get into our passage, is that Jesus is Lord over everything in this world and the world that is to come. You can read it with me from verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
Now, I have two sisters, uh, one older, one younger, which is great. It's nice to be the middle child. It's nice to be normal. Elder siblings, they have to cope with the trauma of being like the family guinea pig, first to do the HSC, first to get a license, all that kind of stuff. Younger siblings, it seems like they're either spoiled rotten or just totally neglected. So being the middle child, I think, is a real sweet spot. But it might surprise you to know that being the middle child was not always so desirable. You see, back in the day, being the firstborn, being the eldest sibling, meant you got some special status and privilege. And we still see this from time to time in a few different places. For example, in the royal family. We have Elizabeth II, who is the queen, but next in line for the crown is her firstborn, Prince Charles. Then it's Charles's firstborn, Prince William, and then it's William's firstborn, Prince George. Now, George, he's only a little tacker, but he outranks his own uncle, Prince Harry, William's brother, because George is the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn. Point is, being the firstborn has some perks. There are advantages, particularly in Bible times. Being the firstborn would mean you got an inheritance. The firstborn gets the stuff. It's a title about ownership. The inheritance belongs to the firstborn. But in what sense can we call Jesus the firstborn? Well, let's look a little further into verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is Lord because he is the firstborn. He is the firstborn because he made everything. And by everything, we really do mean everything. Okay? A beautiful sunset, Jesus made it. Blue whales, Jesus made them too. He also made stuff we don't understand so well. As a science teacher, I get to talk with students about all manner of weird and wonderful things. Dark matter, gravitational waves, things that are on the very limit of human science and, and what we can understand. But Jesus understands it. He made it. He made other things too. He made weird things. Things like spirits and angels and supernatural stuff. Stuff we really don't have much of an idea about. But Jesus knows these things. In fact, there is no part of existence, no matter how dark or mysterious, that is hidden from him. Jesus made all these things and because he is the firstborn, he owns them. He has authority over them. He made all that is powerful in the world and he rules over it all, including all the human kingdoms. So whether it's the pharaohs, Alexander the Great, Hitler, Joe Biden, ScoMo, your boss at work, Jesus has authority over all of them. He made them, he made everything. And we see this echoed elsewhere in the Bible, the famous kickoff to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, who we later find out is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If something exists, if it's a thing, then it's a thing because Jesus made it a thing. This puts Jesus firmly in the category of creator rather than creation. He's not part of the creation. He is there from before time as the eternal son of God, who along with God the Father and God the Spirit created all things. Jesus is not a creation of God the Father who then got to do some making stuff of his own. He is with God. He is God from the very beginning, present and involved in all of God's acts of creation. And so to make it personal, 
This means that Jesus made me. He made you. He made the person sitting next to you. Jesus is the firstborn because he made it all and he rules over it all. And not only is he the firstborn of this life, but he's the firstborn of the life that is to come. You can have a look at the second verse, uh, second half rather of verse 18. It says, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See, the Lord Jesus is so mind-blowingly huge and awesome, he even defeated death. And as the first human being to rise from the dead, never to die again, he proves beyond all doubt that his lordship, his rule and his authority extends not just over this life, but also the life that is to come, the life that comes after death. So let's try and give, this, give ourselves a moment to take all this in. There really is nothing that Jesus is not the firstborn over. He made it all. He rules it all. There is nothing outside of his domain. As the verse of 18 puts it so appropriately, Jesus is utterly supreme. He is totally preeminent. He is the absolute top of the pile in all existence. But in fact, there's more. Take another look at the end of verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is not just our maker. He is our Lord, literally our boss. Everything that you see and all the stuff you can't is made by Jesus and is made for Jesus. Now that for, that's a purpose statement. It's telling us what our lives are really about. I, I wonder, have you thought about what your purpose is? Take a look at these pictures. There we go, beautiful. Which picture best reflects what you think your purpose is? What's the aim, the goal or the end point of your life? What's the thing you want to build your life on or that you want to be remembered for? Well, if you look again at verse 16, it says you're made for Jesus. A pen is for writing. That's its purpose. A microwave is for warming up food. A birthday cake is for the person having a birthday. They might share it with you, but it's their cake, it's their birthday, and it's all about them. In the same way, everything has been made by Jesus, and he has made everything for himself. Now, that must include you and me. You are a thing that exists because of Jesus, and you exist for Jesus. The purpose of your life is to be entirely orientated towards and focused around the Lord Jesus. Um, soon after I finished year 12, I joined the army. I hopped on a bus at Parramatta with a cranky infantry sergeant and got driven out to Kapuka. And when you join the army, several weird changes happen. For example, you start to carry everything in your left hand. You unintentionally and unconsciously walk in step with other people. You're able to string together a sentence almost entirely out of acronyms. But for me, the biggest change was actually a change in my thinking. It was the realisation that I no longer belonged to myself. In fact, my platoon mates and I, we spent every minute of every day focused entirely on pleasing one person, our platoon commander. Just hop to the next slide. There she is. So whether we were marching or shooting or doing push-ups or sleeping or eating or not sleeping, did a lot of that, we did it all for our platoon commander. For those 13 weeks, our whole lives were based upon her will and purpose for us. In a very real sense, I was for my platoon commander. And in the same way, you and I and everything across all time belongs to Jesus. He owns us and we are for him. And I'm not just talking to the Christians in the room. 
No, Jesus created everything and everyone. You are made by Jesus. You are made for Jesus. Whether you believe it or not, and I want to say whether you like it or not. How do you feel about hearing that? Do you like hearing that you belong to someone else? Your life purpose is not to get a job, to provide for yourself and your family and then your retirement. Your life purpose is not to be a good person who pours themselves into others, as nice as that is. The point of your life is certainly not to be true to yourself, as though our purpose was something we could figure out for ourselves without any input from the God who created us. No, what we read here in God's own word is that your purpose, your life, is all for Jesus. So how do you feel about that? I tend to think that if my life was a book or a movie, that I would be the main character. I would be a hero and all the other characters and events would kind of revolve around me. It's just not true. This makes it plain that actually Jesus is the main character of my life because he is the firstborn. He made me. He owns me. He is Lord and it's all about him. I am all about him. And so are you. Now, if I really understood that, if I really took it to heart that I am for Jesus, I wonder what would change. I mean, everything would change. But what are some specifics? How would I spend my money? How would I use my time? What about my relationships with other people? We could zoom in on that for a moment. If I understand that I belong to Jesus, maybe I would stop choosing my relationships on the basis of what other people can offer me. I wouldn't exclusively hang out with people who I like and make me feel good about myself. Or maybe they've got a lawnmower I want to borrow. Instead, if I'm all about Jesus, my relationships are about him too, then I should be looking to use my relationships selflessly. I'd be working hard to love and care for people who are difficult to be around, who maybe don't have much to offer me at first glance. Though it's interesting how often that turns out to be not the case. In these relationships, rather than our conversations being about just common interests and things that are easy to talk about, our conversations might actually be meaningful, fruitful, um, encouraging and equipping and rebuking each other to live for the one that we are both made for. And that's just, that's just one thing. We could talk about so many things, but that's just one thing that might change if we understand that Jesus is Lord and we are for him. All right, so Jesus is Lord of this world and the world that is come. He made it all. He owns it all. It's all for him. And not only has he made it, but he keeps it all going. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that is the church. See, Jesus hasn't just made this world, kind of wound it up and let it go. Rather, he is intimately involved with the day-to-day running of our universe. It's not the laws of physics that cause the moon to orbit the earth and the earth to orbit the sun and the sun to orbit the Milky Way. Laws don't make things happen. Rather, they describe the way things work. And the way things work is because of the constant involvement of Jesus. Again, if we duck back to Hebrews chapter 1 for a moment, it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And this is true not just on the galactic scale, but again down to each individual human being. As Paul says in in his address to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17, God is not served by human hands, as if he needs anything, Because he himself gives us life and breath and everything else. 
We owe Jesus not just for our creation, but for every moment of our existence. A second does not go by where we are not completely and utterly dependent on him. And this is especially true for the church, that global group of people that belong to Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, the church is described as a body with Jesus as its head. And I'm not a medical expert, but my understanding is that a body that has been deprived of its head is only capable of so much. Indeed, as badly as a body needs its head, I want to argue that the church needs Jesus even more. It's through being joined to Jesus that we have our salvation. It's through him that we grow in Christian maturity. It's through him that we endure in this life. It's through him that we remain united as brothers and sisters. What happens if we lose our connection to our head? Well, in the next chapter of Colossians, verse 19, Paul describes such people and really criticizes them. He gets stuck into them for having lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. As a result, these people have become spiritually immature and having abandoned Jesus as their head, they are instead pursuing supernatural experiences that are ultimately empty and worthless. As Christians, we are utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus every single moment of every single day. So I want to ask you, how's your connection to Christ? It's funny, we tend to notice pretty quickly if the Wi-Fi is a bit slower than usual or if the reception's a little bit patchy. Have you given thought to how well attached your head is, though? And I'm not so much talking about whether or not you're saved. Our salvation is not at all dependent on our own efforts. But I want you to consider whether or not we as Christians, as God's people, are continuing to grow and be built up in Him. Are we getting better at living for Him as we come to know Him better? Are we getting better at recognizing sin in our life and putting it to death? Are we recognizing more and more how utterly dependent we are on him and living in light of that? One thing you might do to help yourself in this area is line yourself up with a trusted Christian friend who can ask you how you're going. And if you want to care for them, you should ask them how they're going in remaining connected to Christ. All right, so summing up so far, Jesus is Lord because he made everything. He keeps it all going. He's the boss of this life and the next. It's all for him. But I'm not sure if you've noticed that this world that Jesus has made and that he is Lord of, it's a mess. It's a total disaster. If you don't believe me, you just haven't been paying attention. It is an inescapable fact that this world is full of all kinds of pain and sadness and suffering. I want to know, what is Jesus doing about this? Well, this is where the second half of our passage comes in. Because Jesus is Lord, through, because through his death and resurrection, his rising from the dead, he has ended the war between us and God. He is is Lord because he has made peace. And you can see this for yourself in verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is Lord because he has made peace between us and God. But hang on. If he's made peace, does that mean at one point there was a war? Well, yeah. Think back to earlier. Think back to how you felt when I told you that Jesus owns you and your life is all for him. We don't like hearing that. 
We don't like being told that we belong to someone else. We value freedom. That's fair enough. We want to be able to do our own thing and follow our own path. And so we attempt to rule ourselves, but in doing so, we reject the real king's rightful authority over us. And it's not like we're good at ruling ourselves. All the pain and suffering that we see around us is a result of our failed attempt at independence from God. But you know, even worse than that, even worse than that, our attempt at self-rule actually makes us enemies with God. We literally go to war with God. Take a look in verse 21. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. To be alienated means to be separated, to be disconnected, out of sync with God who made us and sustains us. And notice that our rejection of Jesus is evident not just in what we do, but even just in our minds, in the things that we think. Now, maybe you, maybe you don't think this applies to you. You've never done anything terrible, never killed anybody, never even told God to get stuffed. You might even be a pretty decent person who just kind of minds their own business, just happens to have never paid much attention to the whole God thing. Someone who, when the topic of God comes around, you say, ah, oh, I'm not religious. How could you, how could you be God's enemy if you've never had anything to do with him? But I want you to imagine, imagine if, going back to the Queen, imagine if Queen Elizabeth II were to walk into this room. She walks in here, she's got her corgis, trumpets, guardsmen, royal splendor. How would it go if Queen Elizabeth walks into this room and I just kept doing my thing? I just kept talking away, acting like she wasn't even there. How would that go down? I would be in so much trouble. And rightly so, you can't get away with ignoring someone who is that important and that significant. And so if that's true for the Queen, who, if we're honest, is just another person like you or me, how much more true is this of the God who created us, who gives us life and breath and everything? And if ignoring the Queen means I've got to face her anger, then you really need to ask yourself, are you ready to go to war with the creator of the universe? This is the God who has sent global floods. He's burned entire cities. He's destroyed nations with plague and sword and famine. This is the same God who, in his perfect justice, is going to deal with you and me. Folks, we're talking about having to face God's judgment. We're talking about death, even hell. What are we going to do? In fact, what, what can we do? There's a, an astonishing passage, uh, verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 that makes it clear just how bleak our situation really is. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It calls us dead. Not sick with a chance of getting better. Not fallen with a chance of picking ourselves up. Not down at half time, but maybe there's a late game turnaround on the cards. We're dead. Dead things don't do much. There's no chance of us making a recovery no chance of us somehow turning things around, it's over. And this is where our rejection of Jesus' rule has gotten us. But it's also why the gospel, why the news of Jesus' rule over all things has become known as not just news, but good news, unbelievably good news, even beautiful news. Have a look again, verses 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish 
and free from accusation. This passage tells us that the God who made us, the same God that we have rejected, that is so enraged by our rebellion against him, this God loves us. He loves you. He sent Jesus, our Lord and King, to bring us back to him. Jesus is Lord because he has ended the war. He has made peace. That word reconciled, it means to bring things back together or to set them in order. And it gets used twice in today's passage, once in verse 20 and again in 22. We're just going to focus on 22 for a bit. We'll come back to 20 in a second. But in this case, reconciliation means to bring rebellious people like you and I back together with the God who loves us, back under the kind and generous rule of Jesus our Lord. Now, do you, do you understand how incredible this is? Do you understand how that should make you feel? If a declaration of war brings fear and uncertainty, then this proclamation of peace should just be pure joy. Up on the screen, here we go, yeah, up on the screen. Here are some people of photos of people celebrating the end of the First and Second World Wars and you can see the expression on their faces, the hope, the excitement, the relief, the gladness. It's over. Then that should be us. This is the gospel, the phenomenal news that Jesus is Lord and because of him we can have peace with God. And the peace, it didn't come cheap. It saw the Son of God, the ruler, maker, sustainer of all things, leave his throne and enter this mess of a world. He made himself subject to the people that he had made, people whose very existence, their every breath was owed to him. He allows himself to be killed by them. And then he dies in our place, rises again, defeating death so you and I don't have to face it. Folks, if, if nothing else, I hope this passage is giving you a really look just into how phenomenal, just how awesome Jesus is. He is incomparable in his raw power and authority. His rule extends to every corner of existence. But he's also incomparable in his, his raw power and sacrifice as he dies for infinitely sinful humans and ends the war between us and God. Jesus really is Lord. And because of that, because Jesus is Lord, there's two things that I want to kind of wrap up with today. Two things I think we need to think about and act on. The first thing is, I want to tell you to give up. Okay, hopefully you don't get told that too often. But I'm telling you to give up because the war is over. In the closing months of the Second World War, as the Allies made their way closer and closer to Japan... Uh, there were lots of small Pacific islands that had been held by the Japanese, but now as the Allies made their advance, were being taken over. And sometimes when this happened, the Japanese soldiers stationed on these islands would escape. They'd go into the jungle, they'd go into hiding, and continue their fight against the Allies, even after their island had been captured. Uh, some of these Japanese soldiers, they continued to fight right up until the war officially ended. Some even fought on after the war had ended. They hid out in the jungle, they'd steal supplies so that they could keep eating and keep up the fight. Now this went on for months after the war had ended. The soldiers would hide deeper and deeper into the jungle, they'd be eating toads and rats and eels to survive. When Allied aircraft dropped leaflets to them telling them that the war was over, they actually thought it was a lie. They thought it was a trick to make them surrender. So they kept fighting for years. And years, they got into gun battles with local fishermen and police. They became malnourished and diseased. Their families back home gave them up as dead, moved on with life without them. 
You know, the last Japanese soldier to stop fighting the Second World War surrendered in 1972, nearly 30 years after the war had actually ended. 30 years of missing your family, hiding in holes, eating vermin, all because they refused to believe that the war was over. And for those of you who don't yet think that Jesus is Lord, if you're continuing to resist his loving rule over your life, or if you're just ignoring him, you are like one of these Japanese soldiers. You need to understand this. The war is over. Jesus has won. Every single person is going to have to accept his lordship. You really need to stop fighting and surrender to him. If you choose not to surrender in this life, you will be made to surrender in the next. This takes us back to the use of the word reconcile now in verse 20. There it says that God has through Jesus reconciled all things to himself. Can we take this to mean that all people will be saved automatically? Every sinful person gets a a free pass on facing God's judgment. Well, the answer is no. In other parts of scripture, including there's a big if that kicks off verse 23, it makes it clear that not every person will be pardoned for their sin. Remember that that word reconcile, it means to bring together or to set in order. And things, all things will be brought together under the ultimate rule of Jesus. There will be peace between me and God. But will it be as I willingly bend the knee to Jesus and his rightful rule? Or will it be that after years of resistance and refusing God's generous peace terms, will I be finally forced to submit under the conquering king? As it says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Again, that's whether we like it or not. So I beg you, stop fighting. Be reconciled to God. How can you do this? Well, by accepting God's amazing, gracious offer of forgiveness and making your life about the one who really is Lord. That's Jesus. If that's something you want to find out more about, please come and talk to me afterwards. Chat with a Christian friend. This is far too big to miss. What about the Christians in the room? What should they do? Well, if you do believe and live with Jesus as Lord, if you are depending on him, as the only way that you can be made right with God, then I want to ask you, why have you been saved? For what purpose? What's the point? Let me put a different question to you. What do you think is the best thing about Christian, being a Christian? What, what do you love most about being a Christian? Because I think we very easily fall into thinking about Christianity in a way that makes us the main character again. But just like how we were made by Jesus and made for Jesus... We are actually reconciled by Jesus and reconciled for Jesus. Have a look in verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Why have you been reconciled? Well, Jesus died to make you holy, to make you clean enough to be presented to the God who saved you. The point of being a Christian and the best thing about being a Christian is that we get to be with God. We get to bask in his glory. We get to marvel at his brilliance. We get to spend all of eternity enjoying making a big deal out of him. My salvation is not about me. It revolves entirely around the Lord Jesus. And yet, we so easily make Christianity about ourselves. We say things like, being a Christian is great because I have power to get through hard times. Because I have peace. 
to ride the storms of life. Being a Christian is great because I know there's a unique plan and calling for my life. Being a Christian is great because I... You see how easily we make Christianity about ourselves. No, Jesus needs to be at the centre of Christianity. And I'm not saying that all of those other wonderful things aren't true, but actually they're even better than that because the truth is so much greater because the truth is it's all about Jesus, who is Lord. So yes, Christians do have power. God's power to say no to sin and instead live for Jesus because it's all about him. And yes, Christians do enjoy real, unshakable peace, peace with God, bought through the precious blood of Jesus. And yes, God does have a calling for your life, but it's not to be a gold medalist or a brain surgeon or a concert pianist. Those things could happen and God knows it already, but actually you're being called to follow someone far greater than yourself. His name is Jesus. And if we settle for anything less than making our lives 100% about Jesus, then at best we are selling ourselves short. But actually at worst, we might be guilty of rejecting all over again the rightful rule of Jesus who made us, who owns us, who loves us, who died for us so that we could be with him. Bringing it all together, Jesus is Lord. He is God, the creator, the ruler and peacemaker of all things. There is no part of all existence no part of each individual human that is not under his lordship. As God's people, it should be our primary goal to see his loving rule reflected more and more in our own lives and in the lives of those around us as we await the day when Jesus returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. And when that day does come, most of what we've done in our lives will not count for much. What will matter is your answer to the question, What did you do when you heard the news that Jesus is Lord? It is my sincere prayer and hope that you'll seriously consider that question. I'm going to invite the musos back up and they're going to close up for this morning.